0: Ladies and gentlemen, will you join me in welcoming to the stage, Dr. Harvey O'Brien and Lance Dave.
1: Thank you. Hey, okay. Good evening, everybody. Uh, You're welcome to the Irish Film Institute. I hope you enjoyed that screening. I'm very pleased uh, to be able to speak with the director of the film, Lance Staley. And what I will do is ask him a couple of leading questions myself to get things going. And you can be preparing your questions uh, while I'm doing that. And then we will open it to the floor. We have roving mics, so please wait for a mic to come to you before you start speaking, otherwise, we probably won't hear you. Uh, so, yeah, so let's, let's move into can the conversation. I, I yeah, let's go ahead. i
2: just for a second. Is it possible to just turn the, the, um, the, the searchlights down? They are, <laughs> they are a bit bright. They are a bit bright. I'm British. already
1: terrified, and it feels like an <laughs> interrogation sort of situation. Thanks yeah. very much. I'll get, I'll get my spotlight out now. Okay, cool, right, so um, Berlin was February, and it's been a while coming to public release here, so what's happened since February? Uh, Well,
2: you know, there's always pressure to get the film moving as quickly as possible, and you've got to, you know, sales agents want to sell it, and people want to see it, and it wasn't, if I'm honest, it wasn't quite finished when we went to Berlin, so it was a little frustrating, you know, because it sort of got got its launch wasn't quite there, so there were a few things got picked at that I thought, you know, that, I, that we could improve. and So it was a little bit frustrating, but it was a great start, and then it did the Dublin Film Festival here the same in the same form, unfortunately. Uh, and then we've just been doing, you know, wildcard distribution have put it out in Ireland and I think done a fantastic job, and they've just, they're, they're, they just wanted to pursue this release strategy of, of previewing it. Around in in small festivals around the country, and just sort of taking the temperature on it, and sort of each time we previewed it because we spent all the money long before the film was finished, so so it was um, it was a it was a it was a, a, all those last each time we'd screen it, I'd have fixed one more thing or changed one more thing, you know. And so even in Galway when we showed it, uh, it was still not quite there. It's only sort of. Um, its final form now the last few weeks so great uh, so it's really just a scramble to get it done and then and since then we've got america it's been picked up for the states uh, ifc are distributing it there who did when they shakes the barley there and also it's kind of a good fit and the and the uk it's coming out in uh three weeks from now so. yeah great so
1: it's, it's great to to see it finally on release so there have been a couple of threads that have been in popular discourse uh, since the previews. There's two uh, that I want to kind of talk about. First of all is this incredible historical legacy that you have now put yourself into as being the first film about the famine. That's one. And the other is the references, both Donald Clark in, in The Times and Variety are referring to it as a Western. So you've got yourself between two very interesting stools. The, the genre side of things, like, oh, it's a western, and then the importance of history in Ireland. And Where do you find yourself between those two particular stools? I,
2: I think the question actually sums up very well the, the main dilemma of making this film, which is how do, you, how do you gather the resources you need to stage this and to, to create this period world and, and, and populate it with horses and gunpowder and crowds of people and, and you dress those locations. I mean, it all takes huge resources. How do you do that, and still try and be sincere and respectful to the history of Enniskillen Moor and and the, the legacy and the sort of shared ownership that Irish people certainly have of that story? You know, you don't want to be exploiting that. Someone last night at a Q and A Q&A actually suggested uh, we've created a new genre: Mixploitation. exploitation. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, so you, don't, but you, you know, so you don't... Is that ex- new? Uh, don't, well, that's a good point. It? Um, it's probably a list. Um, but so, so it was... It, it was and, and, you know, attributing a genre to it, like, when we were saying we were, finan- we were trying to finance it as a Western, it was a struggle. But then when you start calling it prestige period action, it somehow <laughs> is more appealing to financiers. So, I mean, you know, I think the genre thing is all about dressing it up. But it is... It's a genre movie. It's about soldiers going after a soldier um through you know through an inhospitable landscape there's a revenge theme in there which is very much like the the, the theme of you know Sam Peckinpah and Pam movies like you know Wild Bunch or Pat and Billy Kid or Outlaw Josie Wales or you know so it's so it is a I mean it's a it is a Western uh probably in its DNA, you know. I know the original writers, uh P.J. Dillon and Pierce Ryan were thinking about Outlaw Josie Wales, you know, I probably moved away from that a little bit, but um, so now that's interesting because actually there.
1: that's what I wanted to, to tease out actually is that yeah. writing process and yeah. I know at one point it was called The Ranger uh, in, in development Yeah. and that kind of does suggest something that bit more generic uh, that the Americans would probably think oh it's a Texas Ranger uh, but yeah. like, you know it's, it's, it's in, a, in a certain field so how much did it transform in the course of the writing?
2: Um,
1: I think I,
2: I, I probably when I got involved in it I probably just felt like it, it, it probably needed to be a broader story um, and I think that feels like it was the right call now, seeing the way people are responding to it, because there was there was a need for a film about this or certainly a desire on people's part in Ireland to see images of this time and to, and actually just to have the conversations that people are having about it now. So I did want to make it a bit broader. it was a bit more like a horror sort of revenge story, and you know I just tried to make try trying to just broaden out the story and create uh, an understanding of where the characters were coming from and try and create some empathy between the audience and characters mm-hmm. and that kind of thing so it was really just trying to make it a little bit more down the centre and, and and like I say and not so aware of, of how important the story is and and you know I don't like s- saying in a way it's not, it's not the famine movie or a, mam- a movie about the famine I mean the famine is a backdrop in it mm-hmm. and, 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 and you, you know you, it uses this genre to tell that story you're trying to smuggle in all of that Uh, And all the untold history as well are certainly the, the less well-known aspects of of the time. You know, um, to bring all those in. So I suppose it's just a juggling act, and then you're trying to. I don't think you can do a film about the suffering of the famine. I think, you know, I don't. I I think that's beyond cinema or entertainment. You know, like really, the more you read about it, the more really horrific. It is, and horrific the experience is for for people who were there. So I think that, you know, I tried to respect that too, and sort of, you know, they are that that part of it is in the background or is off screen because. You, you never I don't think you can do that justice really.
1: well I mean it's an interesting intervention to to use genre or to make a genre film and as you say the backdrop and this question of smuggler is something we've always talked about in relation to American films where you know a backdrop suddenly informs something so the outlaw Josie Wells is a very good example of that and that the legacy of the south and everything that that war represented is is crawling across that film at all times
2: well and also the way he sympathetically represented those native American characters yeah. that join him, you know, and and it's not a huge amount, but like in terms of a Western, obviously that's I mean I'm, I, people may have heard me talking about this already because it's sort of the backbone of how I felt about it, but just the the Western paints the the. the the frontier as an unspoiled wilderness that, that, that the settlers go and, and, and bring civilization to you know when actually it was people's homes and it was, there, was, there was a civilization there that yeah. was destroyed and I think that that's just got a perfect parallel with Ireland and, and it's really interesting then to make a, a western but tell it from the, yeah. from the point of view of the Cheyenne or the Apache or yeah. you know and, and I think Irish people really like being the Apaches as well. So, it's sort of, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, a, yeah. sort of a neat package in a
1: way, I think. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, a couple of films, a lot of films came to mind while I was watching it in terms of generic precedent or in terms of the use of the score, which is terribly in Morricone, you know, that kind of feeling. But there were a couple of others. I don't know if you've seen them or if there were any impact on you, but Red Hill, uh, Australian... Western-esque film, which is about precisely an Aboriginal coming back to a community that has victimised him and then kind of terrorising them. It's got a horror tone to it. Defiance, uh, which dealt with, again, the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto, saying, you know, we're moving away from this victim paradigm towards something else. And it may be fantastical or it may be wish fulfilment, but it fulfils a social purpose. And I mean, is that something you were conscious of with these films, you know?
2: Well, and it fills, I don't know, Red Hill, actually... Um, and it sounds like one somebody should have told me about. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody mentioned it till now. Um, uh, you know, I think there's. I think it's necessary for. You know, I think even the point of an Irish Film Board or the point of a tax incentive to make things here and like just from a. So, you know, everything in this project is, is really a commercial project because that's the only way that I can tell this story and actually put it in the world and have it supported by the mechanisms that are there to bring a cinema to an audience and to finance a movie. But actually, just to be a bit more sort of culture-oriented or cyclic, I think it is really important that, that, that the structures are there to support this type of film. And obviously, we've had to dabble in the dark arts of producing a movie and getting it done and convincing people it's gonna be have a commercial value. But actually we're telling a story and it was one of the most important things for me was to tell a story that stands up to an Irish audience. All those promises we made about international sales and international is, is <laughs> you know is something to actually it's tell a story deal, that, yeah. that we kind of want to see told and that isn't compromised by, you know, we, we did have access, there was a point where we had access to probably between two and three times the budget that we had to make this movie, but it was a conversation about a happy ending, mm-hmm. uh, and then it was a conversation about, well, is there any chance you can just put any hope in the ending? Because they still wanted to do it, and I was like, no, the happy ending, you know? Can you put any hope? Can you? And I was like, there's no hope in this yeah. in this narrative. You can't. You just. It's just completely false to do it because there's a hundred years of population decline following this, and there's no. You know, it's really just. The place is, is, is just a disaster, you know, the, the story that we're telling. and So trying to find a way to, to finish that movie that people feel, mm. don't just feel miserable, because mm. then nobody's going to see it. You know, that was the trick. <laughs> no, 100%. And, and that was, and it was a trick with, you know, and I tried to do that. I mean, we did this film, Kisses, and it was the same thing about trying to, get, trying to find an ending that was true to it uh, and that wasn't trite, but that actually people still feel like
1: fired up by in some way, you know, so I think it's a, it's a good challenge, I like the idea yeah. that, you know? No, I, I mean, I like the film, there's a couple of things I really liked about it, um, I love the one-shot muskets, because it added a huge amount of tension to action scenes, nowadays it'd be going on for an hour and a half, but I guess like one shot and you realise the deadly power of a bullet, and that was really effective in the film. also, I enjoyed writing those
2: action sequences with that, you know, it sort of, it creates a new rule system for that particular you know, but they, you know, someone made the point that the American gun laws were created when that was what a gun was. Mm, yeah. So, you know, it's, so someone's licensed to have a gun so they can, they can fire a shot. And yeah. then, you know, and I think somebody's there's a video online of somebody with trying to go on a shooting spree with that's a, right, with, with a, a musk, yeah. you know, yeah. and it is, it's a different, just a different world. But 1847 is a different world in every way. And, and that's, that was the other thing that was interesting about the film for me is how do you you know, all the, all the rules are different and how people live is different and tr- trying to get there from here was like the trick. And well, that's one of the, the things wings. I wanted to
1: talk to you about as well is, is the visuals of the film and the use of the landscape and buildings and so forth. And I mean, how much did you delve into the visual record of Irish art and illustration and how much of it was kind of necessity of imagination?
2: Well, no, I know th- I, can, I can honestly say that we, I, I think, we looked at everything, you know. There's not, there's not a huge... Wealth of, of visual um, resources from the time, you know, it predates photography, and there was very few famine. There were very few paintings of um, the famine landscape or the time, obviously, for, for obvious reasons. You know, people tended to romanticise Ireland um, in that decade. If they did come to do a painting, so and you know, there was a uh, an exhibition of um, paintings in Dublin Castle recently, and. You know, there's not. There's, there's, they fill a couple of rooms. Like, there's really not. Uh, and, and most of it is 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 certainly catalogued by the Quinnipiac Museum in, in Canada. So um, there's there's a family museum there. You know. Um, so we went through that. That's all online. I mean, we used to get lost in it because they have so they have so much. All the newspaper clippings, all the everything from the time. So we we looked at it very hard. And and but it's you know you have to imagine as well when you read about it. You see the pictures and then you read about it. It's slightly different because when you read about it, you. You know, most people lived in these fourth-class dwellings, they call them, which are basically mud huts, you know, just houses made of turf and bog wood and thatch. And so there was a landscape there that doesn't exist now. And, you know, I did, did my best to I didn't quite get it the way... The way I, you know, I wanted because it's very, it's just very hard stuff to do. But and what um, were you after that you couldn't get? Were you
1: trying to replicate what you'd seen in those illustrations? Or? No, I, no, we
2: got. I think the illustrations are very well replicated, and I think there's, there's, you know, um, Asimov Nicholson's book, uh, American who who travelled around Ireland at the time and wrote an eyewitness account. That's actually very well mirrored by the film as well. But, but I just, but there's also just this scale of of population. It was so densely populated in the West, and there was a whole. There was a world there that just was wiped out by the famine. You know that certain class um, who who lived on you know less than an acre and built a hut on it and lived on it, with their family and farmed it, and and they all this is the cottager class. You know they're they're basically they were the ones who were who were wiped out by it, and and so it was trying to create that, and there's no. Yeah you read about it all over the place but there's no there's no p- real pictures of it or so you know so it's it's yeah there's a leap i mean there is a leap of imagination Yeah. yeah. plus it doesn't exist in Connemara now it's like yeah. there's roads and electricity and white cottages and that's yeah. square forests everywhere. I mean, that's
1: the other thing, and I guess it'll be interesting to see how the audience responds to that, but, you know, the, the visuals of the Irish landscape itself and the difference to Wicklow and Connemara, yeah. uh, And And we might notice, and all the other audiences wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, how much was location shooting an important factor in how the film got made?
2: Well, um... We we couldn't go to Connemara; it was too expensive. There you go, <laughs> you know. Um, but a lot of the backgrounds are Connemara because they uh, there's 550 visual effects shots in the film, you know. And um, I went down to Connemara for, for a week and just photographed landscapes, and we and we put them in, you know, like when they ride into the village before they find the pig uh, beheaded. You know, there's that's that's where it really they did a great job on it. But that's that's a rotoscope. Like we shot that in Wicklow and then every every frame is rotoscoped around all the characters and they're they're reimposed against against Connemara and against the Montrech mountains So um but we did shoot in Wicklow and, um and uh we replaced most of it. Yeah, but that's kind of the way you do it. It's it it was a small amount extra to go to Connemara, but it's just it's just all the rules, you know, it's yeah. it's so heavily unionized, everybody gets a bump when you go to Connemara, they all get mileage, they all get accommodation you know and it's just it just became too much so the actors were kind of really really furious because they were really, they'd really <laughs> excited about all going and they, they had a plan about where someone had some poaching for them and everything and they, were all like, they were all really wanted to go there but it just you know we couldn't do it so uh, but I, I think it feels i mean it feels in that regard the film feels like where it should be like the, the we did pickups at the end when when he walks and they find the the, the, just the little tumble-down scalping where the, where the mother lived in the winter, where, the, where she died, or the graves and all like, that. Was, that was shot in Connemara, but that's, that was about it, yeah.
1: Okay, it's probably a good time to go to the audience. Now, again, we've got mics, so people with mics, look for hands there. Um, there's one over here. Uh, I have a quick three-parter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> James Freshfield, why did you decide he was your man? How did you get Hugo weaving on board and how does it work with four writers? Did you do the last pass on the
2: screenplay? Um, uh, okay, I'll take the third part first, isn't that what they say? <laughs> um, uh, the, the script was in a certain form when I came to it um, that, P, that PJ and Pierce had written and then Eugene O'Brien had done work on. As I said, so they're a team and then Eugene worked on it separately. And then they'd probably worked on it more, back and forth. I don't know how that went. And then, yeah, and then I came in at the end and and actually sat down with PJ and had a conversation with him about what was important and what he really wanted to keep. And and I did show him the first few drafts, and he said, "Look, this is ridiculous." And that when I was still tuning into what the famine meant, how people lived. So, and I, I kind of added the sort of first act, but. The, fil- the film originally started with, with, with Feeney killing the preacher and putting him, in, a, putting him in, the, in his own golden soup. Actually, it was a bit bloodier. Um, <laughs> and, and, then, and then Hannah was dispatched to stop him, so there wasn't really a backstory, and I thought, like, we probably need to see it and tell the story, and even for a wide audience. So And then the third act, actually, was Eugene had messed about with, I think, in earlier drafts, food riots and an uprising and that kind of thing. So, so I kind of did from when... When Feeney grabs a, a Kill Michael at the hotel, and they're telling the story about the, you know, when Stephen tells that story about if you take an English, the English pretty English maiden and put her in the Irish cabin, I stole that from a German traveller's account of the time from coming around the time. Um, so, yeah, I did that pass, and then, then, then we went out and financed it. And then Hugo, uh, Hugo was actually attached to it before I came to it. Uh, which in the past has, has not worked very well for me to have... You know, when an actor's been involved first, um, might not always be right, but he was he was perfect in this case. He was absolutely perfect as Hannah. And he spent a long time thinking about it, and he's, he's like, the most prepared actor like that I've ever worked with in terms of, like, he just really, really knows exactly what he wants to do and and, and does that. And so there was a lot of value in him being there that long. And then James Freshfield, I, you know, we, we, we talked to... Some of the more obvious Irish candidates who, who, who would have helped us to finance films, as well. And, uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know what the reasons are. Like, you never know with actors, like, whether they, whether it's not enough money, whether they are scared of the part, whether they think it's shit. Like, you just can't... You know what I mean? You just... I've no idea, because you don't really get that feedback. You just get a pass or not. A pass or a, or a let's do it. Um, so I just talked to James over Skype, and... Um, yeah, he's just different. He's just different to all the other actors I did who, who did pitch me for it and wanted to do it. You know, he just seemed so solid and so and so weirdly Irish, even though he's Australian. You know, <laughs> it's like he just looks so Irish, and he has just a and it was just a level of commitment. We promised each other, okay, I'm in, you're in, and he said I'm in, and he wasn't going to take any any other auditions. He's going to grow his beard. He was going to learn how to ride a horse and fight and I speak Irish accent like it was a lot he had to do and I was gonna say I'm not making the film with anyone else. And so the film could have not happened because he obviously doesn't have didn't have a huge amount of profile. I mean he's great, he's great in Animal Kingdom. People who love movies know him but you know, in a wider audience he wouldn't be that he wouldn't have that profile. So it was a tricky sale for me. So it could have been the case that he did an audition for any for six months and then it just went away. And it could have been the case that I got him six months later and he hadn't done his work, but we both think, delivered on it, so it was good. Turned out to be a good uh, collaboration in the end, yeah. What did you think of him? I he was really good.
1: He, he, his acting was pretty good, and uh, he had kind of a solid
2: yeah. In the role. yeah. I think he does. You know, I mean, it's a, complex, it's a complex performance, I think, that people will come to more over time, because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't bawl about his trauma, and he doesn't. it's very internal and very you know, complex, but I think he's, I think he's great,
1: yeah. Mm. Cool. Um, We've got more hands. Um, Anybody on this side of the house before? No. So over that side of the house. Yep.
0: Hi, I'm Linda.
1: Ah, great. Um, Thank you.
0: Can I check, how did you decide how much to translate into Irish? And is there a plan to have more subtitles of the show in the UK? And is there enough Irish for it to be considered for kind of like a foreign language film in some festivals? Right.
2: Um, okay, I don't think we're going to get away with the foreign language thing. In the world, <laughs> but I think that's, that we'd really be chancing that. Um, uh, did we... You know, it's ba- it's, uh, I, I really just tried to base it on the authenticity of the social structure. And, you know, if you're on the bottom, you only speak Irish. Halfway up, you have both. And then the top, you're sort of like, you know, speak English. And, and you don't want to hear the Aboriginal nonsense, you know. Um, so... It, and then, I mean, so how much? It was really based on that and, and, and story. And what was the second part? Oh, yeah. What, what do you think? Do you think we need to subtitle it's just some of the Irish accent? or well, No, no, I think it's... I remember think the that's, commitments? That's they actually is. issued
1: a booklet <laughs> with an explanation. It was very good marketing, words. yeah. <laughs> and when
2: we, when we put out Kisses in America, we actually sub- we had to subtitle it um, just because the Dublin accent was so strong, you know? But um, I think... Uh, no, I think it's I think it's fine where it is. I think everybody's sort of happy with it, and, and it's, uh, the, there's enough clarity in it when this you know not the Irish things, but I think the, the Irish is very important to me is it, mm. uh, in terms of us all owning it and feeling it. it's. We, I have a weird relationship with it because I'm I'm hearing Irish in a different way than I ever did before since I did this and I'm sort of more interested in it you know than than what school did to me. You
1: know, yeah. I thought that was very effective. I mean, especially the scene with the confrontation with the judge, because yeah. you have that direct correlation. You speak English, okay? I'm going to speak Irish to you, and you're going to blow your head off. I mean, it was yeah. actually that you know language and the force of language. Yeah, well, the and language the power. is.
2: It, but th- that's the important point: is that language was, was, you know, probably the biggest weapon, the most, yeah. um, the, you know, the most potent weapon of of the time, and and you know, and it was really a, a such a blow to the Irish language at this this period because. You know, everybody who went, they were the Irish speakers,
1: you know, Yes, yeah, so. absolutely. So, um, on this side of the house, we've got to have those few there. Yep.
2: <coughs> um, really enjoyed it. I was going to ask you another question about Irish. Uh, yeah. I noticed uh, in the credits that you had a dialect consultant. Yes. And uh, brilliant, it really, really fit. Um, I was wondering, was that a big prerequisite, you know, um, Irish with the actors, obviously, you mentioned one was Australian. Yep. Um, Would that have been a big plus? Was, were you thinking that the whole time? Was everyone from the West or from all over? Well, Sarah's from Cork uh, originally, and but you don't say originally, as I was told by the Cork station today. She's still from Cork. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then who, who else? I mean, yeah, like um, Andrew, who played uh, Barclay, he's. He had pretty good Irish, I think. Jeremy Dufuice, who played the, Catholic, the the Catholic priest, you know, was was an Irish speaker. I've also been told not to say Galgorm, believe it or not. I got in trouble down in Kerry for saying Galgorm. Apparently, oh that's, right, okay. Apparently, that's uh, better to say Irish speaker. I don't know. I was like Galgorm, but um, I'm at that level of paranoia because there's so many like t- <laughs> that's touching, that's touching. <laughs> um, and then, no, so there was, there's some Irish speakers sprinkled in, but Pater Cox was the, was the, was the guy. Like he's, he plays the translator in the film, so he's translating for the, for the bailiff when they're doing the eviction, and he's also translating in the soup tent, and he coached the actors. And, and actually, even Kirkus Quillock, the song that James sings um, by the fire, is, is like a song that uh, Pater got from his mother, who was from Connemara. And so, you know, so we tried to, you know, we tried to root everything back there, but we spent, we went, you know, it was every line of the script was, I mean, I've told this a couple of times, but just, it, it, you know, the, the beauty of using the Irish language in it was the, was how it changed the English. So there's, there's a scene when Kilmichael says the, you know, I don't speak that Aboriginal nonsense, speak English. And James's character was meant to say never again. And the script was just never again. And then you only see how bad that line is when it's improved by... Pater was like, yeah, don't really say seen every, there's no real translation for that, so we talked about it for a while, and he suggested, I won't speak it, nor ever, and then, like, the subtitling, you know, changing the English to say, I won't speak it, nor ever, I thought was, was magic. There's lots of little changes like that in, the, in how the Irish affected the English in a really nice, sort of elegant way, so, so it, was really, it was really important. I'm glad, I'm glad you, uh, you liked the, the Irish part of it, yeah.
1: Cool. There's more hands over there, yeah. <coughs>
2: How's it going?
0: Hi. Uh, I was just wondering, this might be a stupid question to a lot of people in the room, but taking the
2: soup. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> oh, well, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's great to, to clarify. Yeah, I as, so. I, as I said, it might be a stupid question, but for. Yeah. A, a well, I, I started getting, once I was making the film, there was a lot of. People who, who were, that's what they wanted to see in it. And it was always in the script, there was always that scene, this important scene. But people, you know, in the, in the West, like, especially down in Kerry, like a few people, they, st- they still talk about a family, oh, there are supers. Yeah. Um, and it's a family, or it's basically, it's, it's, you know, the Protestants, mainly, it was Protestants who, overzealous Protestants, would would give you soup if you signed up and converted from Catholicism. And part of that would be. The anglicisation of the name from, you know, Seamus O'Sullivan to James Sullivan actually changes it, the registrar changes it for him, and, um, and, you know, dropping the O on the front of the name is sort of historically the sort of the giveaway, you know, and a lot of that was temporary, you know, and you know, the Irish attitude would be like, sure, yeah, I'll I'll go with your, I'll join your party, (laughs) you know, just give me the soup and I'm sure lots went back, but lots didn't as well and became part of that different community, so so it's.
1: Um, um, it gave the film its big punchline as well. If you listening to this shite for hours, yeah, <laughs> it's it such just, a great line. It does get a good <laughs> chuckle, yeah. So, and you need a laugh in the middle of it. Like it's hard to get <laughs>
2: jokes in. Um, so that was it. Does that make sense? Yeah, That's the soup. That's taking the soup, yeah. yeah. Cool.
1: Yep, yeah, there's a lady over here.
2: I always wanted them to pass that guy, the, 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 the reverend. I always wanted Hannah and his party of searchers to go past him and the reverend like have his teeth knocked out and be on the cart just <laughs> disgusted that he'd got with everything loaded on the back going back with his tail between his legs but <laughs> I, I couldn't find a place to put it in the story and uh, to my great regret because it would have been good. <laughs> Sorry, yes? Um, thanks,
0: really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. It's, it's interesting that there's two Australian actors in there. James yeah. Freshman, by the way, I did not tweak him as being Australian at all. So. Fantastic. Yeah, Nicely <laughs> done. Um, but what I was thinking about actually is I think it, I feel like it has a similar relationship between genre and history that something like John Hillcote's The Proposition has in relation to its kind of reconfiguration of the British place in Australian and Aboriginal history. So I just thought that was interesting given that you've got Hugo Weaving and James Fresh in there. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about is actually kind of related to that other question. It's more a technical distribution production mm-hmm. question rather than anything else. Yeah. In terms of things like pre-sales to countries like America, and Australia, and Britain with large, um, you know, immigrant descendant communities, are you trying to frame it in particular ways to play over there, or are you? I'm thinking of things like the title Black Forty Seven. Have you seen that playing in different countries? so um, are you, are there accommodations you're making, or are there approaches you're taking, or as you you know, consider a genre
2: piece or what's that? No, I think it's I think any, any aspiration anybody had to it being a genre, genre piece is is dissolving now. I think that you know it it's sort of been seen as something else. And they're certainly marketing in the States to to the diaspora as much as possible. And I, I keep you know, people have been I you know, but however long I've been making films, people have been saying, Oh, you know, there's forty million Irish in America, this is gonna really you know, this has a chance there. And, but I've never really seen that demonstrated. I and mean, I've started to say now with this, like, if they can't find a way to that diaspora with this particular film, which is sort of about the event that sent a lot of them there, then I, I think it's bullshit. Like, I, don't, I just don't believe it anymore. You know, like, there is a potential audience, but how to get it, I don't know. But it's up to the individual distributors, really. Uh, IFC are doing it in America and, and, and Altitude are doing it in the UK. Australia actually is not sold. I was wondering about that, actually. I was going yeah. to ask you, has
1: there any really been Australian sales?
2: Uh, not yet. So um, hopefully, but not yet, you know. And then I think everybody's waiting to see how it does in, these, in Ireland. Like, the Americans and the, and, and the English distributor are still just holding back the three weeks, and they want to see how the first week goes in Ireland. So, so it's, a, a lot is based on how it does this week in terms of how they'll roll it out there. And then in terms of – I know you mentioned pre-sales and stuff. We didn't pre-sell those territories. We pre-sold – I think we pre-sold Ireland and the UK, but that was part of – some other part of the dark arts of it all, and um, I think we did Germany in
1: the Middle East or something. I don't know. That was some hold of favor there. I don't know how they. The Plays there. Yeah. yeah. Sorry for not recognizing you, Laura. I recognized you once you started speaking. <laughs> Lights in my eyes. Um, yeah. So um, there's somebody up the front here, actually. And we've got a few from the back, so uh, maybe from this side, and then there's somebody over there for that other mic in a minute.
2: The Stephen Ray song from traditional, yeah. it is a traditional song, Little Jimmy Murphy. Yeah, it's from 1798, I think. Is it? I don't know, I've heard it a lot in the pubs over
1: the years,
2: you know. Yeah, and yeah, no, yes. and yeah, um, McGill-Mar, to my great shame, I think I found on YouTube after <laughs> I couldn't get that's the song Sarah sings, which is actually a very popular song and well covered. But, but Stephen's song. Um, I think Potter probably suggested it, or one of our his, or one of our history advisors. I can't remember exactly, but the the appeal for Stephen, which he loved, was I don't know how many people get the the reference, but he he says, um, uh, um, I've forgotten the lyrics now, but there's a, a reference to Kate Whelan, You know, uh, he he um, little Jimmy Murphy was uh, he fell for a, a pretty maiden by the name of Kate Wheelan, and Kate Whelan would be. Uh, anglicised version of Kathleen Nehulaghan you know um, which was the you know, personification of Ireland in, in that time so Stephen mm. loved that, uh, that he's singing that song going along on the mule and, and putting in that sort of subversive political message with the, with the English guys there with him, you know, which is why he repeated the line and I, I fought him with that on that on <laughs> the day but actually quite like it now <laughs> yeah, That's, that's um,
1: Stephen already he loves to do that sort yeah, of yeah, thing yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry the, the other mic is over here somewhere? Little yep. Jimmy Murphy, it's
2: called. Yeah. Well done. Very enjoyable. Uh, two questions. Hi, Sorry. So hey. Thanks. Um, one being, when you mentioned you're doing research for the visuals of the film. So obviously a lot has been retouched
0: for the sculpting and VFX. There's a very painterly quality to a lot of the shots.
2: Is there any artist in particular you looked at, or that you found particularly resonated with you? Again, I'm embarrassed to say it's been a while. There was one American painter that Gary Curran, the colorist, came up with when I, I kept mentioning and I, I had a sort of list, you know, just a sort of pinterest frame grabs of things I thought were all that sort of single source coming through the window and sort of um natural light. And and I'll have to come back to you. I'm sorry. He paint he paints very simple, iconic uh scenes with just a person and a tractor or just a tree and a hill or you know it was just very very simple and sparse um now i'm gone blank sorry but yeah, it, no it boy, was yeah. quite a, quite obscure but but not really i mean m- m- most of the references were were the stuff from the time or a sense of movies that we would have had in our conversation you know with the and the cinematographer and valdemar kalanovsky the production designer obviously as well it's very important
0: Cool. And the name of the author, the German author,
2: of the book? Of the
1: book? Yeah, you mentioned
2: some... Travel oh, no, no. Okay, them. no. So there was, a, there was a book of German traveller accounts. And I think that was published by an Irish academic who gathered them. I can't remember the name of that, sorry. And Asenath Nicholson was the American writer who wrote The Eyewitness Count, Travelling Around the West, and I think that's a brilliant book to read. Asenath Nicholson, yeah. And she wrote Ireland Welcomes the Stranger. She came a few years before, it's kind of worth reading both of them. She came a few years before, and Ireland is this kind of wonderful place of, of complete poverty, but, but, but a real sort of social balance and gentle, friendly people. And she went around the whole country, and it's sort of like a postcard. And it's really, really interesting. And then she comes back during the famine because she heard it's bad and she goes around again. And it's just really sort of heartbreaking. And it's a first-hand account. And it hasn't been authored over the years or changed, you know. So I think it's really interesting because it's one of those things where you see people are exactly the same now as they were 170 years ago. You know, the sentiment and the way she deals with it. So I'd recommend it, yeah. Cheers.
1: Okay, we're, we're about to wrap. Have we maybe a last one from the audience? Yeah. Oh, sorry, <laughs> it's gone over there. <laughs>
0: Oh, sorry um, I was just wondering if you think we'll ever find out uh, which
1: way
2: Hugo even turns at the end like for the sequel or something <laughs> <laughs> uh, there won't be a sequel on this but I'll ask you um, but I'll, we'll do an experiment here which is interesting can, can I see a show of hands would you mind on um, who thinks that he went to America and now uh, who thinks that he went after Pope Okay, so I'll tell you a quick story about that. So there's less, so it's kind of it's pre- this is a pretty chilled audience, you know, because it sort of reflects your own inner desires for how the story will be, uh, will be resolved. But I we showed it in Belfast uh, a couple of weeks uh, last week, and um, I said, you know, and I took a show of hands, and it was like three quarters of them went after Pope. Seven seven. And I said, I said, um, I said, I said that's really interesting because the last time we did it in Dublin, you know, it was about 50-50. And this guy, Danny Morrison, you might know him, extra-philic prisoner, I think he's a champion counsellor or something now. He was at the back and he
1: said, that's why the British are still here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, we
1: didn't fight hard enough
2: down here. Britain,
1: so. Okay, well we can't top that for a finish. Um, I, I would like to thank Lance Daly uh, for his time thank this evening and for his wonderful film and thank you all for your time and attention. Please,